From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation in technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. In Minnesota, travel and tourism generates more than $16 billion in gross sales every year, which is equivalent to more than $44 million every day. It also accounts for 11% of total private sector employment, yet no sector has been hit worse during the COVID-19 pandemic than hospitality. Throughout the Minneapolis and St. Paul region, employment in this sector, which includes arts, entertainment, recreation, accommodations, and food services, dropped 54% from March to April. Within this industry sector, employment at full-service restaurants dropped 74.1% from 60,098 individuals in March to 16,671 in April. On Friday, June 12th, the Twin West Chamber of Commerce hosted its monthly Issues and Insights event, this time via Zoom. I moderated a panel discussion on how COVID-19 has impacted Minnesota industries in retail, restaurant, hotel, and resorts and campgrounds. Attendees heard from the leaders who were managing never-experienced-before economy and coping with the potential health-related impact on its members and customers. The panelists were Liz Sheridan Raymer, President and CEO of Hospitality Minnesota, Ann Kirby McGill, Director of Strategic Alignment for Hospitality Minnesota, and Bruce Newstead, President and CEO of the Minnesota Retailers Association. We want to welcome you to the June Issues and Insights. Uh, We have a great program um, for you today, so we're looking forward to to having some great dialogue um, followed or following some um, really innovative, captivating presentations. So we're looking forward to that. My name is Shannon Full, the president here at Twin West. Uh, to everyone joining us, welcome. It's uh, great to see this is the, one of the first uh, issues and insights that we have done since the consolidation announcement with the Minneapolis Regional Chamber. So welcome to the Minneapolis Regional Chamber members that are joining us as well. We're looking forward to a great uh, day today. Great presentation, a beautiful Friday morning. So uh, so we're gonna get started here. Uh, how this is gonna work is I will uh, share my screen and it'll give, we'll walk through a little bit of the beginning presentation. Uh, I'll turn it over to our moderator for Finance and Commerce. And then um, each of the presenters will uh, share their screens and give you some background information uh, and then we will have a, a, a question and answer time. So as I mentioned, uh, this is our Issues and, Ish- Issues and Insights program, uh, formerly known as our Legislative Breakfast. Uh, we at West now does this with Minneapolis, and we do these once a month on practical, practical topics, um, uh, kind of the most crucial topics that we're seeing uh, in our community. And so um, we are extremely excited to have you uh, with us today. Uh, we do have uh, a few legislators that are joining us today. Uh, part of the tradition of this uh, program, and actually one of the greatest assets of this program, is that we're able to hear 
from our local, local and state elected officials on a particular topic or question of the day. Uh, we do this uh, event, as I said, it's been, it's probably the most um, recognized event of Twin West, and it's really a, a premier event for us. We can't do these events without the fabulous sponsors and the support that we get from our sponsors. So Malax Corporate Ventures has been a tremendous series sponsor with us for many, many years. We have sustaining sponsors that include Alina Health, Centerpoint Energy, PCS Human Capital, Rasmussen College, Rudy Luther Toyota, and Velocity Public Affairs. And then numerous session sponsors as well. Our session sponsors include AAA Minneapolis, AT&T, CBiz, Choice Bank, Comcast, Goff Public, Scott Build, and Weber Johnson. Finally, our uh, in-kind sponsors, uh, we've had a great partnership now with Finance and Commerce as our media sponsor. Uh, you'll hear from Joel in just a minute. Uh, and then our in-kind sponsor uh, is run by Analytics. So to all of our sponsors, once again, especially at a time now, um, one of the things I wanted to just mention, our sponsors have been extremely flexible and ex extremely gracious with their sponsorship dollars as we're trying to reinvent uh, what kind of the um, programming aspect looks like for the chambers as we go forward. So as I mentioned, here's our legislator question of the day. So as a state legislator, we broke it into two different um, aspects. As, the state legislator, as a state legislator, uh, we know that uh, the special session has just opened. Uh, so please tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the special session, specifically if there are priorities uh, that you have within the bonding bill or thoughts on the bonding bill. And then as a local elected official, please give us your perspectives on the priorities or the most pressing um, aspect that you're focusing on uh, as it relates to local businesses and our communities. Jan Callison, because I see your name first, we're gonna, we're gonna start with you. Okay. So, uh, cause I'm finding your names on the list. Yeah. So. Good morning. Well, it's unfortunate to have your last name start with a C, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but happy to answer the question. Bruce, nice to see you again after many years. Um, in terms of local priorities, I would say one of certainly is COVID relief or COVID funding, and that is less for the county because we received a direct appropriation and a recognition that the cities, the school districts, other entities need those funds. So I'm really eager to see the legislature really hone in on this topic and make some good decisions because this money really needs to roll to these entities. Uh, the second um, newer issue, again, for businesses is aid to Minneapolis and aid to the businesses um, that were damaged by the civil unrest a couple weeks ago. So that's also going to be very, really crucial for localities as well as the counties. I would put those two items at the top of, of the county's list. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Let's see who else. I see on my screen um, uh, uh, Representative Kelly Morrison. Good morning, everyone. This is Kelly Morrison. I'm state representative for District 33B, which includes nine communities in sort of the Southwest Lake Minnetonka area. I'm also a practicing physician and uh, in my first term. So boy, we have a lot to tackle in special session. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have several priorities that are specific to my district. Uh, one of them is around critical water infrastructure in Spring Park. Uh, and I think that needs to be a priority all over the state. Uh, distributing the CARES money obviously is crucial as we continue to uh, try to manage uh, the pandemic. Um, and I would agree with um, 
Commissioner uh, Callison that um, helping the Minneapolis and St. Paul neighborhoods recover. Great, thank you. Thanks for having um, me. I also see Representative Podin. Good morning, this is uh, State Representative Mary Kunish Podin. I represent District 41B, that's Columbia Heights and Hilltop, St. Anthony Village and New Brighton. Um, of course, COVID is uh, at the top of our list um, of priorities, making sure that the funds that have come from the federal government as well as the state are getting out uh, in an equitable manner. Um, I also have been working with uh, the Posse Caucus at the legislature, people of color indigenous, and we have um, put together um, the first of uh, public safety and police reform uh, array of legislation. So um, we are continuing to work on that, to hone that, and um, are hoping to share the whole packet with, uh, with the legislature as well as, as the state as we go forward addressing uh, the civil unrest and, and the things that, um, you know, the, the nucleus of the, of the uh, issues that were at hand. I also am um, looking forward to passing an education policy bill. We um, ran out of time uh, on the last day, literally. <laughs> I think we were five names uh, short of passing that bill when the clock hit midnight. So Chair Joachim, I'm sure, is looking forward to bringing that back. Um, we have also worked on an education equity bill that I, I hope to present. And um, as we look forward to the fall, when all these schools and universities um, are asking us, what do we do? How do we do this? What is it going to look like? Um, we're still not sure about that. And so uh, addressing and thinking about how we can support our education system across the board is definitely one of those discussions that, that I'll look forward to. Wonderful, thank you, Representative. So now we're going to turn it. I'm going to turn it over to the our um, moderator for the day. Uh, Joel uh, has been a great partner. Finance and Commerce has been a great partner uh, to the Twin West Chamber uh, for many years. Uh, we are very pleased uh, to have um, uh, Joel uh, Settler with us today. Um, see, Joel, I, it's not to see with me. Uh, we just went over this, all of the, the names. So um, Joel Shetler's joining us. We're going to have him take it away, introduce our panelists, and have the discussion. Thanks, Joel. First, let me thank you for uh, letting me participate. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation uh, as well. Um, so thank you, everyone. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to introduce our panelists, our speakers and they're gonna jump right in and give presentations. But uh, as Shannon said, I'll be monitoring questions at the end. Um, so feel free to ask those questions too. So welcome everybody. Thanks again for having me. I'm, I appreciate it. And um, I'm looking forward to our discussion. So um, we're gonna hear from uh, three specialists here in this industry. Um, Liz Raymer, she is the president and CEO of Hospitality Minnesota. She's going to present along with Ann Kirby McGill, who is the director of excuse me, the director of strategic alignment for Hospitality Minnesota as well. 
And then we are going to hear from Bruce Newstad, the president and CEO of the Minnesota Retailers Association. Um, so without further delay, I'm going to pass it over to Liz and Ann, and they're going to co-present right now and give their first presentation. Well, thank you, Joel, and thank you, Shannon. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here and delighted to share some information with you. Um, first, we'll just talk a second about Hospitality Minnesota to give you some background. Uh, our organization is a trade association, and we represent, as you can see, the lodging, res uh, restaurant, resort, and campground sectors, which includes a uh, broad range includes food service of all kinds, including institutional catering. Uh, we also serve outfitters, those serving the wonderful Boundary Waters Canoe area, um, and really a, a great array across the hospitality and tourism industry. And uh, I've been in my role here at Hospitality Minnesota just not quite two years, and it's been quite a two years. I've been the same day twice since I walked in. Um, just in terms of the context setting, uh, you see there on the slide, uh, we have had actually three associations. So the three sectors that I mentioned, uh, also an education foundation and a management company. So we had uh, until recently five boards of directors, which required 24 board meetings a year. And um, you know, again, some of these associations go back to the 1930s. And so it's a long storied organization, but had always been in these uh, disparate kind of uh, segments. And so uh, we worked, uh, as I came in the door, with all of the boards to come together as one organization. So in January of this year, all three groups decided that it was time to become truly one uh, nonprofit trade group. And uh, so they voted in January to merge. And the merger was set to take place on April 1. And how appropriate, right? <laughs> right in the midst of pan pandemic, we're also completing a merger. Um, but it was uh, truly just in the nick of time, we have now created uh, an opportunity to leverage that one voice uh, to represent uh, all of the different interests across the shared industry. And very importantly, as part of our mission is uh, helping our members thrive and survive uh, right now, this pandemic, but certainly business success is the core of everything we do as we look at this uh, very important industry to our state. We also recognize through our education foundation, the real opportunity to train young people and we are currently um, have educational programs uh, for our uh, culinary arts, our Pro Start program, and our hospitality tourism management program that serves juniors and seniors in high schools. And we're in 70 different uh, high schools around the state, state and looking to grow that program because of the high interest and great jobs and wonderful opportunities to move into a whole range of uh, career paths, management, and so forth. So, those are th uh, core things that we're really looking at strengthening and taking advantage of as we look to revitalize this uh, injured industry right now. Um, but truly as one organization now, as Hospitality Minnesota, we can move forth and, and uh, be able to be uh, really effective in that regard. Um, as we look to, you wanna move the slide in, um, you know, as we think about what's next, um, you know, Looking back, I mean, these last three months, it seems like a blur, right? <laughs> but um, even in early March, our industry was starting to really see the effects of COVID creeping across the country uh, as we started to see the screeching halt of all things travel. Uh, certainly that impacted both the tourism and leisure travel side of things and as well the professional side. And we all continue to see that, of course. 
And uh, now even the stranded cruise ships that were in the ports in San Francisco and Florida seem almost like a dim memory, but at the time trying to get those people off and figuring out what to do was really kind of the start of when we all um, started considering the really big impact that this was going to have on us. And so all of those things impacted greatly the hospitality and tourism industry. And um, certainly when the stay at home order was enacted, uh, that was something along with the executive orders for the closures of our businesses starting on March 17th, which, you know, as you well know, it's like Christmas for a lot of these hospitality industry folks where the St. Patrick's Day celebrations are far and wide and certainly are a huge revenue driver for our uh, food service, uh, restaurant and bar sector. So right away, this had an immediate impact as uh, those businesses were ordered to close. And uh, so it was a big hit. And uh, as we look at our industry, to give you some context, it is a big industry. Um, it is 300,000 jobs. It's a $16 billion a year um, revenue generator. And it also uh, all contributes as a result of that 18% of our sales tax. So it's a huge economic driver for our state to be able to do the programming that we want to do serve all of our different communities. And uh, right away, as I said, with the St. Patrick's Day um, uh, kind of closure, we saw an immediate um, furlough uh, layoff of a lot of workers. And in fact, for the food service sector alone, it was 97%. So it was just the bottom dropped out in an instant for this industry. And so those are the things that have been uh, a real challenge for us as we consider how we can best help our our industry and these businesses survive. As we think about this, we um, looked at our, uh, we surveyed our, our folks to find out what was going on in their um, world as they contemplated what closure would mean to them. And we surveyed our folks in March, um, shortly after the pandemic hit, and then again in April. And our survey in April was really startling, where we were told that, uh, these businesses had one to three months to survive. They run on very tight margins. There's not a lot of money in the bank to um, keep them afloat without any revenue coming in the door. And over 50% told us they would probably face permanent closure within three months. So that would be July. And so we were uh, immediately dispatched to try to work towards helping them uh, on a number of different legislative issues. Uh, certainly we, uh, also, we're looking at the new paradigm in the food service industry of uh, takeout delivery uh, kinds of paradigms that people immediately had to figure out how they could turn and pivot on a dime to make their, um, their particular model work. Uh, we know that the lodging folks also started to look at uh, what they could do. Resorts and campgrounds were already starting to wonder if they were going to have a season especially since a lot of these were not designated as essential businesses to keep operating. And as we all know by now, um, the small business sector has been inordinately hit here because uh, they have been mostly uh, shut down uh, during this entire time uh, or uh, very moderately uh, continuing to operate while a lot of our big box folks are continuing to um, have lots of people in the door. So. Uh, there was a lot of consternation about that uh, conundrum as well as they considered what they could do to keep afloat. Uh, we were looking at um, all kinds of relief for economic injury, 
the deed program came out to offer some emergency loan support, um, but quite honestly felt short because it was only open to restaurants uh, as they were designated um, in that essential category, but um, it wasn't open to some of these other sectors that were uh, damaged as well with the shutdown and cancellations coming in by the droves. Um, so that's something that we started looking at right away, what we could do to uh, support our members and increase the funding in that program and also uh, enable more of these uh, businesses to have access to funding. We also uh, were working on a national level with our partners with the National Restaurant Association and American Hotel and Lodging Association and the uh, RV Campground Association to uh, enact the CARES Act and now the Flexibility uh, Act to fix the challenges with the PPP. And as you've probably read, the PPP had lots of issues, but in particular, it was uh, very challenging for our industry that was mostly closed, closed down. Um, our folks were not able to really leverage those dollars because of the June 30th deadline and the need to bring back 75% of the workforce to uh, get at those monies and uh, take advantage of that loan. But now, happily with the fix that was made a week ago to that program, uh, the extension being made to the end of the year will greatly help with that. So we've had to really uh, flex and be able to be nimble to work towards some of these uh, different legislative issues, both on the state and the national level that will impact our industry. And uh, right now we're really looking towards the safe opening. Um, really, again, in multiple phases, uh, we know that, um, as you heard, our displeasure for the June 1 announcement of patio outdoor only dining options for our restaurant uh, folks. That was a huge disappointment and surprise for us, um, given the many conversation we had been having about uh, the urgent need to get these businesses reopened to address this uh, precipitous fall and disaster that was really awaiting uh, with more permanent closures. And knowing that outdoor dining only doesn't work for most of our uh, folks around our state. And so with the address of uh, last week to be able to move to a 50% occupancy reopening of indoor dining, that was a, a really good step forward. And Wednesday here this week was a big day for a lot of our folks to be able to start to get back to some semblance of normalcy and to offer really a safe reopening for customers. You know, uh, hospitality is in a great position to help us uh, heal a lot of uh, challenges right now in our country and in our communities and bring people together um, that can really be a wonderful opportunity for health and well-being and uh, addressing some of the uh, community uh, challenges that we're all facing. And so those are some of the things that we've been working on and uh, I'll pass it over to Ann now who can share a little bit more about uh, what we've been doing um, from here. Thank you, Liz. Again, my name is Ann Kirby McGill, and I spent last year with the organization as a consultant working with Liz on the merger and uh, decided to join to help build the new organization on January 1, so just in time to have every ball thrown up in the air. I just want to take a little bit of time on this dent slide to, to while we have a unified voice and we have sectors that come together under the umbrella of hospitality, there are some distinctions to um, their circumstances and how they've been impacted by COVID. So I just want to go through this very quickly. As Liz 
mentioned, uh, particularly in the food service sector, very tight margins, high labor costs, it's highly regulated. It's the greatest percentage of businesses in the industry. And so when it's impacted, it's felt uh, far and wide. Uh, social distancing is a barrier to business because obviously restaurants and bars are places where people come together to get close to one another. Uh, and they're also highly leveraged businesses and um, the closure meant they had minimal revenue opportunities. And as Liz said, they turned on a dime and tried to look at new models and I'll, I'll um, speak to that in the next slide. But uh, initially they were closed to all but takeout and uh, we worked early on to help uh, advance some revenue opportunity by getting alcohol to go approved. Uh, and so that added a little bit uh, to their revenue stream, but there were some businesses that tried takeout initially and it just didn't work for their business model. And so they, um, they throttled back on that. Uh, phase two, we had outdoor dining, maximum of 50 people, and then pretty closely following on with indoor dining at 50%, which we're seeing this week, maximums of 250. And it's meant a huge change up in their internal operations around uh, PPE and social distancing and how they structure their spaces. So there's a lot a lot of activity going on to try to figure out how they can bring people in safely, but they're doing it. Hotels and motels uh, were deemed an essential business right away, but of course, all of their amenities were closed down. Their pools, their fitness centers, if they had gift shops, if uh, restaurants, anything like that. Uh, we know from industry research that they're running uh, between five and 20% occupancy, depending upon where they are. And um, highly obviously dependent on business travel, which is screeched to a halt. They're highly regulated. Um, they facilitate social distancing, so uh, there's, there is that. They can be used that way. Uh, and they are, as we'll see in the next slide, some uh, new social service contracts that are helping them fill some rooms. Uh, they, again, essential accommodation initially, but no amenities. Golf courses did open on April 18th. That helped some. Uh, outdoor dining uh, helped them uh, where they have restaurants and then indoor dining, pools opening, meeting room salons. This week is uh, seeing some movement. So resorts and campgrounds, I'm going to sort of work together because um, we have year-round resorts and seasonal resorts and seasonal campgrounds. And uh, while the hotel portions of resorts were deemed essential and could operate uh, as the hotels did, uh, the question about whether or not they'd be able to open up to seasonal guests uh, was in question for a long time. And that makes it difficult to get prepared. They also rely heavily on their um, deposits as a way to get amped up for the coming season and when people were canceling and they were they had to refund or, or book to next year, uh, it's been changing um, what they have to work with in terms of their cash flow. As we know, resorts and campgrounds are impacted by the weather, they have a short season and seasonal businesses have about a four month run to make their annual income. So it's, they were facing big challenges and a lot of unknowns and uncertainty about whether or not they would actually get to open at all this summer. So the fact that they have been able to open, recreational camping is now open, pools are now open, and most of the reports we're hearing this week is that it's hard to find a camp 
campground space, particularly if you want to come in with an RV, you know, an RV into the RV parks. They're doing pretty well, though they're, you know, having to make a lot of operational adjustments to uh, keep people socially distanced and away from congregating activities. So they're learning to operate in a new way. And then finally, of course, there are allied businesses. You know, this is, <laughs> if you see the scope and scale of this work, it's, you know, from toothpicks to boat launches, they're like nearly every business in some way, the utilities, it, you know, there's a ripple effect about what is happening to all of the businesses that uh, rely on their relationship with businesses in the hospitality industry to, to um, make their uh, margin. So um, we're working with all of them to figure out how to uh, best navigate this. And um, so some of what Liz had uh, referred to earlier is, you know, sort of the way in which they're responding and finding new ways to operate. Uh, takeout has been a a really good thing for a lot of them. In fact, they're probably slowing their um, return to full service because they've got now an operational bent going that um, is working for them until they can be assured that they can operate safely as full service. They're gonna stick with uh, takeout. We have uh, folks who had products that people were missing and so they turned to uh, partners to, to put products on shelves. Uh, yeah, one great example is a bar and restaurant in Mankato who had a chicken wing sauce that everybody was missing. So they worked with a bottler to, to get that out. So they're finding some new ways to, to open up some revenue streams. Uh, additionally, and you might've seen this, uh, some of the um, independent restaurants are also kind of setting up small grocery stores or CSAs inside their restaurants to be able to bring the products of their farmers and the other producers that they rely on to the public. If they can't, uh, if they can't do that through their food service, then they want to make sure that they're creating an avenue for those products to get out as well. So some of that is happening. And then, as I mentioned, people have been trying some things and stopping them when they realize they don't really work with their model. We are seeing a lot of meal kits coming out of uh, restaurants where they're putting together uh, meals for families of four or six and particularly around the times of the holidays. So Mother's Day, Memorial Day, we saw some restaurants open just to do that thing. Hotels and motels, uh, we got calls early on. There were um, counties particularly that were interested in um, contracting with hotels to facilitate social distancing with um, their uh, people in their facilities, particularly uh, people experiencing homelessness. Uh, the American Hotel and Lodging Association had a nationwide initiative called Hospitality for Hope, and it was a way of connecting uh, organizations to hotels that were willing to open their properties in that way, and more than 200 hotels across Minnesota uh, participated in that. Resorts have been looking at longer term rentals, uh, people calling and looking for a month or a two month rental where, you know, previously they might have gone for a weekend or a week, or they might have gone further away 
overseas or to the coast or something. Tailoring activities to social distancing, this is uh, similar for campgrounds. And then allied businesses are finding some ways to cross sell products they thought uh, worked one way, they're finding are working other ways and they're, they're looking for new opportunities. Uh, so as we continue to help our businesses navigate, the big thing is helping them build consumer confidence. And this is going to be about what they exhibit in terms of their operational practices around safety and social distancing and sanitizing. Uh, and it really is going to, the next wave is going to be about consumers feeling comfortable enough to come back. And we sort of, um, Think about it in there are a third who are going to go back right away. They're comfortable uh, and they're not questioning. There's a third who are going to go back uh, probably not for a long time. And then there's a third in the middle who are going to watch the early adopters and they'll start to wade in and we'll just see how quickly that um, accelerates and what that means for the public health management of COVID and the decisions about opening further. So we're certainly keeping an eye out for the downline hiccups and, and how we can help uh, businesses prepare for navigating those. Uh, continuing to press for the full, the expansion to full opening safely. And then uh, just, we have uh, sort of, before the merger, I, I think our primary leadership um, positioning was around our legislative advocacy and policy work. And so we'll continue to use that to seek policy change, and the economic relief programs, and then look to developing new products and service supports for our members, both to navigate this, but also as uh, Liz indicated, to um, respond to this new world order of uh, life after COVID in the hospitality industry. And so I think, I will turn it back over to Liz to finish up. You're mute, Liz. There we go. Thank you. So in closing, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of uh, work that in that yet needs to be accomplished here. Um, certainly, you know, we were just just beginning to think about how we would endeavor to do some new things with the merger opportunity when the pandemic hit. So um, I think, as I said at the top, and we've uh, mentioned throughout the flexibility here and uh, truly being ready for anything is, is key. And that will continue to be so. Um, you know, we anticipate that this industry will be radically changed in many ways, as we know many industries will. Um, but the advent of this crisis has uh, really mandated people to think innovatively about their operations and what they can do to uh, garner some cash flow at a time when there just hardly is any to be had. And certainly, as Ann said about policy, looking at things uh, longer term that will help these companies stay afloat. This is not going to be a quick fix. This industry has really been irreparably harmed. And this will be many years in terms of recovery and some we already know are not making it as we've seen closures and permanent closures already announced. So it's a heartbreaking time, especially for folks who have poured their life work and their passion into their businesses, many of these small businesses. And uh, so we're doing everything we can from a policy standpoint uh, to be able to support them. 
And uh, certainly as we think about the, uh, responding to the new landscape and the new models that will come, uh, we know that with the advent of takeout and uh, kind of this whole delivery model, that's going to be something that will continue well into the future as we address the continuum of people who are going to be reluctant to venture out. So uh, I think preparedness is, is key here for folks to um, consider as they move into the future with uh, continued reopening. And uh, certainly we look to really steward some of these relationships that we have been able to um, bring along during this um, crisis. And in that way, you know, partnerships that we've uh, developed with our friends at the Craft Brewers Guild and the Minnesota Licensed Beverage Association, and certainly our national partners to help us through this has been really important and a great, I think, underscoring of the collaborative spirit that this community has and the recognition of how great hospitality is for people and what it means for um, civic mindedness, community spirit, and really the fabric of all of our communities and bringing people together. So. Uh, we're uh, certainly thinking about the future in terms of what we can do longer term to make sure our businesses not just survive, but thrive. Um, but I guess, again, the key watchword is um, the anticipation of what could be next and doing our best to anticipate that and help our members know how they can also anticipate the future, even in a world where, ironically, the year is 2020. And our vision is hardly 2020 when we know what's ahead. So um, again, we're doing our best to make sure that uh, folks are able to survive this challenge. And with the reopening, further reopening this week, and hopefully soon uh, increased opportunities to reopen more fully, um, those recoveries will be able to really truly hit the stride that's needed to make this industry whole again. And it's just going to take time. And so. I think my charge to everybody here on the call is do everything you can to support these businesses to make sure they survive and they get the support from their friends and families to do that. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Ann. Um, we're going to have questions later on, so I'm just encouraging everybody to have uh, questions to use the Q&A um, section. But before we get to that now, we'll turn it over to Bruce Newstad, the president and CEO of the Minnesota Retailers Association. Um, he'll, he'll speak for a few minutes and then we'll have questions for everyone. So just encouraging everybody to think of questions and uh, I'll turn it over to Bruce. Hey, great, thanks Joel, appreciate it. Uh, as Joel said, my name is Bruce Newstead. Um, I'm the president of the Minnesota Retailers Association, and as the name suggests, we're a collection of retailers across the state, about 1,200 storefronts, of which about a third are what you'd probably consider Main Street, more mom-and-pop type businesses. About a third are national brands, and about a third are kind of everything in between. We call them regional retailers because we don't know what else to call them, but sort of your mid-size uh, retail pool. So just thanks so much for the opportunity to join you today. I've got a few minutes on just an update on what's going on in the general retail industry. I do want to just start out though by thanking uh, Shannon and the Twin West Chamber and the Minneapolis Regional Chamber too. We had a blog post actually a couple weeks ago um, and the, the, uh, the, the basis of it was that really local chambers and local government are saving Main Street today 
And that's uh, no disrespect to the great work that's being done at the federal level and, and thankfully by our state partners as well. But really some of the innovations that we're seeing uh, in marketplaces to make sure things can work and make sure some of the things that Liz mentioned uh, can be put in place are thanks to the great work of the local chambers and their local government partners. So just a big thank you there. Um, I should also mention, uh, it's so great to see Victoria Marley again. Outside of Lyndon Carlson, Representative Carlson, who's been around Twin West for a long time, uh, Victoria, you might be one of the more loyal Twin Westers that uh, are around. So um, thanks for your great work. And Shannon, thanks for your work as well. Uh, I'm going to go through just a few uh, slides here um, just to give us a little bit of an update on what's going on in retail. Um, so just a quick refresher. On March 27th, all your non-essential stores closed here in Minnesota. Uh, we worked early on with the governor and his staff to try to get to some type of curbside and delivery option that occurred on May 5th. Uh, and then we saw a general reopening of retail on May 18th to in-store customers at about 50%. Um, so um, I think as Liz and Ann mentioned, certainly this has been a time of trial and tribulation, also a time of innovation and opportunity. Um, and uh, like everybody and like all your businesses as well, we're, we're eager to get back to some type of new normal and we'll talk about that toward the end. I think what's interesting on this slide is uh, when we went to curbside on May uh, 5th, we estimate about 40% of retailers actually uh, initially took advantage of that. Some retailers had to retool their operating model uh, to get some type of operating uh, open for curbside and delivery. And then fast forward to May 18th, uh, we think probably about you know, 65 to 70% of retailers actually reopened their doors on the 18th. And we're probably close to 90 to 95% uh, right now, and hopefully getting closer to 100. Um, so lots of work, as Liz and Ann said, there's lots of work to be done. It's, it's interesting in these roles, you sort of celebrate the moments really quick, and then you move on to the next challenge because things get kind of level set again. Um, I liked it. So I figure you've probably seen this chart before used by the governor. It sort of shows the intersection of where things come together, where key decisions can get made. I figure, frankly, the state probably paid a consultant a lot of money to develop this. So I like to use it as well. So we like to kind of redraw it toward when our consumer is going to be comfortable spending. So we relabel it factors to lead to consumer spending. We take public health and we relabel it. What's the perception around the health risk of interacting in the community today? We take social distancing and we call it actually what's your COVID-19 plan as a business? And then we take well-being and we talk about uh, what are the products uh, that are available? And then quite frankly, what are, what's the impulse? What's the motivation to buy uh, or to stop at a store? So we like to sort of take this chart and redraw it. And we think uh, the governor is exactly correct in that in the middle there where it's Minnesota, that's what causes people to go out and shop and buy and dine out and uh, do those things that they would normally. So really the things you can control in that I think is interesting. And this doesn't matter if you're a retailer or a manufacturer, the things you can control are really your COVID plan and how are you managing your products and, and motivating folks to feel comfortable and shop in your store. The thing you can't really manage is the perception of health risk, although your COVID-19 plan works into that. So anyway, I love to use this because I figure we probably paid somebody a lot of money to do it. So I love to love to redraw that one just for folks. Um, I wanna touch on just real quickly in retail because everybody asks us, what are people actually buying today? And so this is some quantitative uh, research that was done by a company called Viabil. And it just shows there's been a real big increase in fashion purchases 
which I guess isn't probably too surprising. We've all spent about two months looking at ourselves in Zoom windows, looking at our clothing, looking around us and trying to figure out, you know, what else we could do to update our Zoom look, et cetera. Uh, about a big 50% increase in computers and accessories, that's probably no surprise. I bet uh, most people on this Zoom actually have bought an accessory or something like that for their home office in the last couple months. Uh, about 34% uh, increase in health and wellness. Again, probably no surprise there. And then a pretty decent boost in uh, home and garden as well. So it just gives you a little snapshot. That's sort of across the country what people are buying today at, at retail outlets. What we think is really interesting is sort of our anecdotal research here in Minnesota surrounding uh, what Minnesotans are buying and purchasing. And so we're seeing a tremendous amount of furniture purchases. Again, that sort of makes sense as we spend a little more time in our homes and think to ourselves, well, I, I can't go and stay in one of Liz and Ann's uh, properties on my staycation, so I'm gonna invest in that couch that I've always wanted. So we're just seeing some of those types of uh, decisions. Uh, bikes and fitness equipment are hot right now, certainly landscaping and nursery. Everybody I know has planted a tree. Uh, home goods are, are big and up right now. And of course, um, food for home preparation, either through your food retailer or your restaurant that's been real innovative along those lines too. So those are kind of the key Minnesota sectors we're seeing. And then we talk to retailers about where are your opportunities right now? Where should you be thinking about your products? This is kind of the area we, we tend to look at. Um, Liz and Ann mentioned sort of um, next steps, and I want to spend just a couple minutes on that before we get to Q&A. Um, I want to thank uh, both the Twin West Chamber and the Minneapolis Chamber. We came out with a plan uh, that we were able to work with the governor on sort of like what are the immediate short-term and mid-term steps for retailers, and we've had a fair amount of success. Uh, this is just another quick look at that uh, relative to getting through the plan. Um, I'm going to talk about um, emergency loans uh, toward the end here, but I just want to point you down toward the end of that screen. You know, long term is um, a real focus of this industry, and I know all industries right now, because believe it or not, there is going to be a day when there is not an executive order that tells you exactly what to do and how many customers you can serve. And I think for most of us, we, we long for that day, and we hope it's actually really, really soon. Uh, so we've now sort of in the retail sector turned our attention to what does that long-term look like? What is, uh, what, what's an operating model where consumers will feel confident because COVID is gonna stick around, but quite frankly, executive or emergency orders won't. So we're really working hard on what's that kind of post-executive order look at things, and then really what's the post-pandemic look too. And I think um, that's where we're seeing a lot of industries spend a lot of time and attention. And there's been a lot of lessons learned over the last couple months, uh, but a lot more for us to learn as well. So. Um, there are some, some next steps I want to make sure I just mentioned really quick. Um, Liz touched on it, emergency loans and the program that the state had early on. Uh, we're big supporters of some continued funding of that program, but as Liz mentioned, in a more broad sense. So we're hopeful uh, for those elected officials uh, on the call. Um, I think there's some agreement on a state loan program. Really, it's a grant program that does have a much more expanded base of uh, participation of really all small businesses, um, not just a particular sector. So hopefully we'll see that uh, taken up and picked up on during a special session. That's money that comes from the CARES Act. It'd be really helpful to a lot of business owners. Uh, it, really the, the impetus is that if you're impacted by COVID, you're eligible to get into the pool for a drawing uh, for a grant. And it's a fair amount of money. It's, it's 
it doesn't fix things for everybody. It certainly takes a good step uh, in helping with the CARES money. So I want to thank, I know Senator Paul Anderson's been just a great champion of this program in your area, Shannon, and Representative Zach Stevenson on your, norm, on your northern edge has been fantastic. And we know folks like Representative Robbins and Senator Pratt, and certainly uh, the deed commissioner, Steve Grove, has been phenomenal on that as well. So as we hit special session, we know there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, and we hope some of these kind of core COVID things remain priorities as well as we talk about police reform and other things. Uh, but there's just a lot of folks to thank for their hard work. It's not easy to run a retail operation or be in government or even run a chamber of commerce right now. Um, so we look forward to seeing what that new normal looks like, hoping we can get there uh, sooner than later. So uh, again, I just want to end by just uh, as, as Liz did, uh, thanking folks for supporting your community retailers. Uh, there's about 50,000 retailers across the state. Uh, it does have a profound impacts on sales tax collections and income tax. Shannon, I saw you at a presentation the other day. I saw right up on it. I think it was for a Rotary Club talking about Fed Reserve numbers and just how far down we are actually in from, a, from an economic whole perspective. And I think the stuff that you focused on was around um, wages and how kind of the wage capacity we have lost over the last couple of months. And I, I'm hopeful we can get to a spot where we can recoup and, re, you know, Minnesota does a pretty good job at recovery, hoping we can get to a spot where we can allow that recovery really, really soon. So anyway, thanks uh, for the time to be with you today. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. Um, appreciate it. Well, it's time for questions and some are rolling in. Um, I thought I'd ask one quick question to the entire panel first. Um, and then we'll get to these uh, Q&As that are rolling in now. So I appreciate that. Keep thinking of your questions, keep sending them, we'll get to them. Um, I thought I'd start just with something that I heard through the presentations and thank you, very interesting uh, presentations. Um, but I wonder if I could share uh, from what I heard the importance of consumer confidence, um, especially like you said, eventually these uh, lockdowns will end, um, people will be back to do doing what they do. Um, I wonder if I could share though an interesting survey I found this week and it kind of got me thinking along these lines if you'll bear with me for a little bit here. Um, it was a Zagat survey called, you may have seen it called the future of dining and it was taken in the field from May 13th through the 27th. But they asked people um, about would they come out again and, and what's the biggest inhibitors? And I thought that was pretty interesting. And a few of the highlights, um, three and four said safety is the biggest issue and the deterrent to coming out to dining again. It's not, it far outweighed financial considerations. Um, on top of that, outdoor seating and reduced capacity was mo most likely to increase their comfort level. Three quarters said they would uh, be more likely to visit if they had that available. But as you know, in Minnesota, that it's a short window to have outdoor dining, obviously. But then 84% of respondents said restaurants operating at full capacity would make them less likely to come. Um, another was that two thirds of all respondents would wait more than a week even after restaurants reopened to even try to come out. But 93% of those said they'd be uh, closer to a month to wait and 20% of them would wait over three months to come. So. Just throwing those broad statistics out there, I wonder if you could respond to, it's important that obviously we lift these restrictions and it, that, that will come obviously with time, but what can the industry do to kind of restore some of that consumer confidence? You know, restrictions being lifted, you still have to, you know, encourage them 
to participate again and, and some of the fears about COVID might um, keep them from doing that um, even when the restrictions are lifted. So uh, I'm gonna feel that to anybody who wants to take it. <laughs> okay, Joel, I'll, I'll jump in here. And, okay. um, you know, those are great points. And uh, I think Anne alluded to that, that there's going to be a continuum of um, hesitancy some people eager to get right back out, others are gonna hang back and others are probably way down the line, maybe for a long time, maybe not until there's a therapeutic intervention available, will they even consider you know, going back to a restaurant? And we acknowledge and recognize all of those are fine. Um, we know that safety is a key focus for this industry, always has been pre-COVID. Um, certainly our industry was already doing best practices and safety protocols before shutdown uh, as uh, the CDC was issuing guidance uh, on enhanced this you know sanitization and uh, and then we all started to learn more about social distancing and certainly you know I think we'll be seeing um, this play out as people do venture back and they see firsthand, again, I think as Ann mentioned, uh, the different protocols in place. Uh, the staff wearing masks is a great example of that visible care that's being given. Um, and then just having visited a restaurant myself Wednesday night to see the new paradigm of disposable menus, um, nothing on the table in terms of shared um, condiments, salt and pepper shakers and the like the staff bringing your box to box your own leftovers, um, all of those different pieces that they will see and experience. And, uh, you know, and I think, again, that's building the customer confidence to know that they're being well taken care of. And one of the aspects that we have been promoting as we looked at our work on reopening guidance is uh, what we call kind of a shared promise that um, the proprietors offer to their customers to indicate their care and concern about safe practices to make sure that their customers stay safe. And in turn, the customers make a promise back to say that they will abide by the new paradigm, the new guidelines, so that they also keep the employees and the operators safe. So it is a, a two-way street in many ways. And uh, we, we do really think that if people enter into a relationship like that and know that they're they have to meet um, both directions together in the middle. Um, that will go a long way to building that customer confidence and getting more people encouraged to come out and enjoy another night of dining uh, that they're so longing for after you know 86 days of not being able to be an indoor restaurant. Yeah, certainly. All right, Joel, just real quick, I think, like Liz said, it's incumbent upon us as industry groups uh, to think about what the future looks like. Again, executive orders won't be around for forever. I said to my members when Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned the governor's executive orders there, that didn't make COVID go away. Uh, the consumer uh, is really the, the pivot point in all of this, as Liz said, uh, not, not, and not rules and regulations. So we have to just, it's incumbent upon all of our groups and all of our chambers of commerce to, to help build the model going forward. And I would just add one thing that people will experience, particularly restaurants, they'll experience them differently. You know, a lot more people are cooking at home. And so chefs and restaurateurs are responding to that by, you know, giving them almost everything up to the plate. And then, you know, you finish it off at home and have sort of the restaurant experience in your own home. And we'll see more of those kinds of responses. Great. Thank you. 
changing topics, we have a few questions coming in. Um, I'm going to lump them together, but they have to do with public safety issues. Um, how concerned are you about public safety issues, especially as it deals with uh, civic unrest that we've seen? Um, I'm lumping a bunch of questions together, but um, how do you, A, what is the impact, and B, uh, one of the questions is what can we do to help them recover as well? And I'll field that to anyone who wants to answer that one. And there wasn't anyone specifically mentioned for that question. Um, any comments or thoughts on that? So maybe just Joe, real quick, sticking with the customer again, um, mm -hmm. I like to pivot on public safety to the customer. Well, certainly it's important that we protect property and those types of things. And I think we had some real challenges, obviously, in, in Minneapolis and parts of St. Paul on that. And that's going to have a deep impact going forward uh, relative to decisions that retailers make relative to rebuilding and what, what it looks like. You're going to have some retailers say, you know what, this is my opportunity to truly rebuild. And given everything that's going on, I'm going to, I'm going to remake my model and they're going to embrace that. You're going to have a section of retailers that just try to restore things to the way they were before the unrest. And then you've got a section of retailers that are just quite frankly aren't going to make it. And we have to really work as an industry to figure out what goes into some of those spots to keep those neighborhoods vibrant. Uh, but I think public safety is certainly important at its very core. It's about, you know, if you go back to basic public safety, how do you keep people safe? And how do you respond in times of, of, of strife? But more on the long term, how do you ensure um, things look good and work good for the customer? Because again, um, the business owner can feel good about the safety around their store, whether that's COVID or other more physical uh, security, but the customer has to feel really confident in it too. And I think that's the, the piece we've missed a little bit on the Minneapolis-St. Paul recovery unrest component is, you know, let's, let's think about how we're going to get consumers back to feeling good about shopping in, in those neighborhoods. Okay. Yeah, and I would just add on to that. Um, Bruce makes great points there. And one of the, um, I think, ongoing challenges for the downtowns in particular, because uh, all of our event business is closed down at the same time. And we know that we need to have safe communities to be able to encourage groups to bring their events to our, our areas. So um, those are all things that work together and it will be incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we find the best new model that's going to help with this recovery. Um, you know, right now, the downtown still with a lot of workers remote, uh, there's virtually no lunch business. <laughs> the dinner is difficult too as it relates to restaurants. And the hotels, as you well know, have been um, at an occupancy rate that's you know well under normal. It's been 10, 20% for a long time now. Um, and so again, all of those things working together to ensure safety of the customers as well as the employees is going to be really, really important to um, spur this recovery. I would just add too, as we've seen in the, the unrest, the way the community has drawn together. I know our organization has gotten calls from other organizations that we haven't generally worked with in the past who are like, how can we help? So there's an initiative with the American Institutes of Architects uh, Minnesota chapter helping restaurants 
not about uh, the safety related to the unrest, but the safety related to COVID, how can they offer their expertise? And we're getting those calls from the city of Minneapolis on a program to see what they can do to help bring people downtown and, and make that easier for them. So there is a, that sense of community spirit about everybody trying to work together to meet the challenge. And Joel, I might Joel, I might just add a little bit to that. Um, mm -hmm. There, the question regarding uh, civil unrest and and what what's happening. Uh, to Bruce's point, uh, the night the kind of an opportunity that uh, Twin West has now in the consolidation with the uh, Minneapolis Regional Chamber is that uh, Jonathan Weinhagen, the president of the Minneapolis Chamber, co-chairs now the Recovery Task Force, the Mayor's Recovery Task Force, and. So what we're hearing and what we're seeing uh, are really a lot of efforts on creating opportunities uh, for the model to look very different than before. So opportunities for um, many of our um, uh, minority-owned businesses that were impacted in the in that area in, in Broadway and Lake Street uh, to actually be able to have ownership in some of these buildings going forward. And so there are there are a lot of um, uh, really good efforts. I would just say that. Um, uh, the the sentiment is really to make sure that it's community focused that those that are that have been impacted that there's trust and respect built within those communities around how uh, making sure that that's front and center on the redesign uh, and the opportunities so uh, we're, we're really uh, pleased to be a part of it but it's also there are great organizations uh, like Lake, Lake Street Council that are doing a tremendous job. Um, and so it's all going to take tremendous partnership and collaboration to do this. Um, I know we've gotten a lot of uh, members that have been reaching out to say, what can I do? Um, there are uh, rebuilding funds that are being lifted up and raised up. And so um, continue to watch that. We'll continue to put that out there. Uh, volunteer efforts, those types of things, uh, we anticipate there'll be a further coordination in that going forward as well. So. Okay, great. I wonder if there are additional thoughts about employment in this uh, sector too. Uh, you know, as you know, 11% of all private employment is in the hospitality sector in Minnesota. Um, some data that I saw too, obviously, um, leisure and hospitality was hit the hardest. Um, some statistics just for the Twin Cities um, showed that overall arts, entertainment, recreation, accommodations, um, it dropped 54%. Um, from March to April, but within that sector, the full-service restaurants dropped to 74% in the Twin Cities from 60,000 people working in the industry to just 16,000 in April. Um, I wonder if you could expand, it's kind of an open-ended question, just on thoughts about those people working in this industry and how important it is to our economy, but then any thoughts about what we can do to help that those people who work in this industry obviously it depends upon that consumer confidence people coming back again but i wonder if you just have some general thoughts about employment in the hospitality industry sure well as i mentioned it is a huge number and you did too um, a lot of people furloughed uh, and folks are starting to bring them back um, we have some additional headwind however with the additional six hundred dollar unemployment um, benefit from the CARES Act that um, makes it more difficult, quite frankly, to bring some folks back right now. Um, that's a shorter term issue, um, but we certainly are hoping that these jobs will still be there um, as these businesses recover. The, uh, 
you know, longer term employment opportunity um, also exists to do some transitional work. And um, we've also been talking with other groups uh, that need workers, uh, you know, in both the shorter term and longer term. For example, the senior care industry needs um, cooks, they need servers, they need all of those kinds of people. So there's a real opportunity to, uh, you know, parallel and work with those kinds of organizations to help employees that have been displaced find employment in other areas where they have uh, skills and gifts. And, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of work around the employee um, was immediately in terms of supporting folks and making sure that they were well supported with unemployment and certainly the CARES Act helped with that with the um, PPP to be able to bring people back as this industry recovered. So, um, you know, again, as we think about our education foundation that I mentioned up front, you know, being able to build a pipeline of, of uh, young people that can uh, transition into lots of different jobs, uh, you know, across this industry and uh, really uh, use those uh, well-learned skills in high school to good effect as they move into the job market. And it'll be, again, in everybody's best interest to make sure that um, we do everything we can to support these businesses through uh, legislative support, financing, and so forth to uh, be able to bring employees back into the fold. And Joel, maybe um, not an answer to your question, but a little more perspective, um, especially for folks uh, in, in businesses on this Zoom. Um, you know, there's probably somewhere in the area of 780,000 Minnesota jobs that depend on the success of Liz's industry and my industry and other related industries. So it's, it's actually not just about those right. folks that are working in our stores and restaurants. It's about the velocity of that job, too. So, again, the sooner we can get back to a safe normal, we'll have a, <clears throat> a far-reaching um, impact on, across Minnesota on all jobs. Yeah, Bruce, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, Ann, I think, talked about our allied groups. And it's, it's such an uh, impact. So for every core job, how many other jobs are supported? You make a great point because it is uh, truly an ecosystem that we support with this industry. And there's lots of tentacles um, that not always are thought about as we consider some of the legislative help that's needed, but uh, all very much interrelated and inter interdependent. And certainly your industry is an integral part of this as well. Um, one other quick question, we'll get it in here if we can. Um, there's a question, what are the biggest differences in regards to hospitality and retail trends when it comes to Metro versus outstate? You know, maybe, you know, outstate, maybe they'll fare better. Outdoor activities, camping, that fits right in with our social distancing. You see some differences there where some sectors might actually show some improvement and in increased demand. Can you talk to the differences about how this is affecting cities versus outstate areas? Yeah, well, I think Greater Minnesota is well positioned to take, I'll say, advantage of uh, the current social distancing. Certainly, um, the great outdoors and more rural space is a natural for that to occur, and we've been saying that since the beginning. And that that is really honestly why it was so vexing to not be able to open our campgrounds in times for Memorial Weekend, um, when that is a third or a quarter of the revenue for some of these operators to come in the door. And um, so, and, and we've all seen some of the trends with RV campers sales going through the roof, you know, again, uh, talking about these longer term rental opportunities as people see, uh, you know, the safety benefit of being able to uh, be with their family in a 
in a location for a longer amount of time and um, be able to be self-contained in some cases with all their facilities um, in one spot and not having to need, you know, a shared services in that regard. Um, you know, so certainly the regional aspect of this is uh, an opportunity and we've seen fewer COVID cases, as we all know, in some of these uh, greater Minnesota counties, uh, there's been very few. And so that, that offers that kind of peace of mind, I think, to folks as well. And the, the uh, you know, more dense cities uh, that does, has always, you know, given some more pause to people and, um, you know, the social distancing in some cases doesn't come as easily. Um, but again, I think we'll see the new practices um, as everyone ventures out more to be able to um, embrace the protocols and the social distancing, um, even in a place like, uh, you know, downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul, for example. And just a quick add on that, you know, recovery on its own will be, will vary by region of Minnesota. I think if you're in Marshall, Minnesota, your COVID deaths and cases look different than Minneapolis. Yep. And so I think the big impact, Joel, there is going to be on recovery and how you see, again, to pivot back to the consumer, you're going to see hopefully recovery in some of these areas that have less of an impact um, much, much quicker. Um, so that, that's our hope is that there's a big recovery impact. We certainly want everybody to recover and you got to create the conditions in which people can operate to the fullest extent that they can safely. Uh, but hopefully we'll see some of that impact and how it plays out in recovery. It is a little bit different though, um, you know, I'll just take resorts for example, um, you know, some of those are doing okay, you know, even at 60 or 70% what they think they might do this year. We've heard from some others that um, are very interdependent on families coming from throughout the U.S. for multi-generational reunions and in some cases those businesses are down 90% because people just aren't traveling. And some of those cancellations have some pretty long tails into the fall. And as you think about the resort industry, it's been a declining industry, um, you know, kind of like farming for the last 10 years or so. And it's already vulnerable. So some of these, um, these impacts are going to be felt for a long time. And the ability for these folks to um, make up the revenue that they've lost this summer are going to be, uh, you know, a challenging. Okay, great. Um, if in the interest of time, maybe I'll kick it back to you, Shannon, unless you want me to ask any more questions there. Um, yeah, we still have quite a few questions, but we really do want to be respectful of everyone's time and yeah. try to wrap up by nine o'clock. Um, uh, I might close uh, just with one final thought because I, I hear we hear this a lot. There's a lot of um, uncertainty right out there in, uh, in everything that we're doing. Um, there were quite a few questions on the, on the um, thread about uh, what if there is another COVID outbreak? What is this going to do uh, to the industry and how do we handle that? That might be what I, I think it's more important that we have that question and then I'll wrap up uh, much faster. Uh, so any thoughts on that? Uh, just real quick, my, my hope is that the, the model we operate under today is the, is the COVID model and going forward we can get beyond what the model looks like today. Having said that, I hope that if we do see another outbreak, we don't fall back to completely closed again. I hope we learn some lessons as to how we're operating today and we can fall back to something that looks more like today as opposed to completely closed. Um, so that's how we sort of view a potential future outbreak anyways. We're all learning how to operate 
safely today, even in the midst of an outbreak. And I hope we can carry that forward. Yeah, I would concur with Bruce's sentiment there. Um, you know, Commissioner Malcolm has said many times, as has the governor, we need to learn to live with the virus. And um, it will be some time before we have that therapeutic intervention. So it's incumbent upon all of us to um, employ these best practices. And, um, and again, using really being able to leverage the insights and lessons that we've learned from this experience into the future. And as I said in my remarks, to be ready for anything, because I think if anything, this, all of us have learned through this is the ability to innovate on the fly, um, figure out how to make your business model work in unprecedented times. And I think um, all of us in the retail and hospitality industry are extremely hardworking, creative, and uh, hard, you know, just dedicated people that want to figure this out. And at the end of the day, they want to welcome their customers back and they wanna keep that connectivity with their community members going. So um, I'm heartened by the fact that we are definitely learning from this challenge and hopefully we will not have this clawback, but I think everybody is going to be much more prepared going forward if it should happen. Great. Okay, so thank you, Joel, uh, for moderating and for your continued partnership uh, from Finance and Commerce. Uh, to, our, to our panelists, uh, Liz, Ann, and Bruce, uh, thank you for the great work that you do each and every day. Uh, your, um, if there's things that I heard today, tremendous amounts of resiliency, innovation, um, reinvention, uh, this is happening in the smallest of smallest retailers and hospitality um, vendors, so whether that be uh, a restaurateur, uh, an entrepreneurial uh, retailer, uh, our hearts go out to the, these two industries, especially because we know how significantly impacted they've been. Uh, I would say to all of uh, you that are on the screen uh, or on the, on the call, making sure that you uh, continue to support uh, these great businesses and all of the great um, aspects that they drive our local economy, uh, employ uh, people, uh, and make the livelihood that we have that we're so rich and vibrant here uh, in our region. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce, or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.